red chilies, green chilies, a side of pozole, and something called Frito Pie. This week, we're in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week, we explore a different foodie city and talk about the great dishes and drinks that make that place unique. Plus, fun things to do there. And this week, it's Santa Fe, New Mexico for red chilies, green chilies, and Christmas on your enchiladas. Plus, we have some pozole and Frito pie, something that Anthony Bourdain hated but the folks in Santa Fe consume by the bag full. But first, let me remind you to subscribe to Destination Eat Drink. That way, the podcast delivers straight to your phone, tablet, or computer automatically each Friday when we drop a new episode. Go to Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or radiomisfits.com to subscribe today. Now, before we get to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and my friend Joe Griffith of Wander, New Mexico, we have to talk about what's going on in the United States and worldwide with the coronavirus. I know a lot of people aren't traveling right now, and it might seem crazy that I continue to do a travel and food podcast while no one is actually traveling. But here's the thing. I think that folks need an escape. I know I do. I'm stuck here in my house every single day, and the constant barrage from television, from the internet, from my friends texting me about coronavirus is just nonstop. And I know that for me, I need an escape on a daily basis. And hopefully, this podcast can be part of your escape for getting away from the constant assault of coronavirus nonstop. Of course, I'm not saying don't be safe, don't practice social distancing. What I'm saying is every once in a while, we can plug in our headphones and just get away from it for a few minutes and enjoy a different place. So that's why we're still doing this podcast, and that's why today I'm talking to Joe Griffith of Wander, New Mexico. Now, Just like everyone else, Santa Fe is on basic lockdown, and Joe is not conducting tours at Wander, New Mexico, as I record this. We recorded our interview at a time when he was doing tours in Santa Fe and Albuquerque, New Mexico, but as of now, he's not doing tours until at least the end of April. And that's a good thing. We all have to stay safe these days. But there will come a time when this coronavirus has passed and we're all ready to start traveling and enjoying new places again. Joe has an interesting backstory. He was a consultant for many years working in places like Dubai and San Francisco before him and his wife said, we're going to New Mexico, and they opened up their foodie tour guide business. They offer tours in Santa Fe, and if you're thinking of going to Santa Fe, well, after this pandemic passes, It would be a great place to go, and you can still go on WanderNewMexico.com and buy a gift certificate for a tour at a later date. So let's talk to Joe about Chili's and Santa Fe, New Mexico. Destination, eat, drink. Joe, I love Santa Fe, and I 
don't think any conversation about the food of Santa Fe can start without us talking about chilies. But when we talk about chilies in Santa Fe, we're not talking about beans and uh, tomato sauce. We're talking about something different, right? Right, right. Chili with an E instead of an I. And what are the kinds of chilies that we'd get in Santa Fe? Yeah, so probably the most well-known chili, um, you know, which has exploded in popularity in recent years, is the hatch chili. Uh, I guess a chili primer before, you know, we even to break down from, from hatch and what people have heard of. So there's a bunch of different kinds of chilies and varieties, even hatch chilies, you know, could be uh, many different types of uh, varieties of chilies. They just come from a place called Hatch, New Mexico in the South. And what a lot of people think is, you know, hatch chili, because when you go to the grocery store or somewhere else in the country and you buy it, most often it's green. Um, they'll think, oh, hatch chili is green chili, and that must be a, a type of chili. And in reality, it's it's kind of like uh, Napa Valley for wine. You know, you could have a wine from there, but it might be a Cabernet, it might be a Merlot, it could be a bunch of different things, right? So think about it like that. Um, and I think the most important thing for people to know about chilies is not only they're red and green, but then within that, there's you know tons and tons of different varieties. And so when you arrive here, uh, the best way to you know, experience the chili is to go to a bunch of our different uh, traditional New Mexican restaurants uh, where you can have it, you know, most typically served as a like a sauce that comes on top of a New Mexican dish, most typically an enchilada. Uh, but then if you kind of know where to look and know which restaurants to go to, uh, there's a bunch of other ways that chili in both its kind of sauce form as well as uh, powder form and many other different types of forms are used in a variety of really interesting ways um, at some of the more innovative restaurants in town. So what are some of your favorite places to go for red and green chili? Yeah, so I tell people the very first place to start, uh, you know, assuming that you're not able to go down to Hatch and kind of see the fields for yourself. Right. Uh, and, and just if people are thinking, about going there, it's about three hours south of Santa Fe, just straight shot down I-25. But in Santa Fe, the first place I'd start is the farmer's market. Uh, and that's because I think, you know, in order to understand food before it's on your plate, why not go and understand where it came from before it got to the restaurant? And when you go there, you'll see a huge variety of vendors. Uh, there's one that, you know, is kind of very uh, well-known and, and, you know, in the, in the fall months when chilies are uh, in season, He'll stand out in front of the farmer's market with his big roaster, uh, almost holding a, you know, putting on like a big show for everybody. And there's nothing like the smell of uh, roasting chilies in the fall here. So I think going to the farmer's market, you'll be able to, you know, talk with this gentleman, uh, you know, and ask any questions that you have about chilies, how they're grown, how they're roasted. Um, but you'll get a sense for all the different varieties that I was speaking of and they're, you know, kind of fresh uh, format. And th that will be green chilies. You know, they look kind of like, if you haven't seen one before, uh, imagine like an Anaheim chili uh, or an Anaheim pepper or any – just take a bell pepper and kind of elongate it and make it a little bit more narrow. So that's what that's what they look like, and you'll get a sense of uh, fresh green chilies there. And at the same time, something we haven't really talked about yet uh, that you tend to see more often in New Mexico is, is red chili. So it's the same exact chili. It's just grown longer, You know, kind of like, again, using a wine analogy. A lot of people um, don't realize – that, um, you know, red and white wine uh, could come from the same grape. It's just a matter of, you know, how long the juice comes into contact with the skin right, once it's right. pressed. Um, and so chili is kind of the same thing. You know, if you if you grow it 
and, and harvest it earlier in the season when it's, you know, fresher, so to speak, it's green. And then the longer it goes into the fall, uh, it will start to turn red as it dries. And so that red chili, once it's dried, is uh, kind of crushed most often into a powder, uh, which is then sort of reconstituted and, and turned into a, a, a really nice sauce. Uh, again, that's served very similarly to how green chili is. It's just, you know, it's kind of personal preference. Do you, do you like red or green? Um, that's actually our state question here. <laughs> and so when you go to the farmer's market, you'll see all of the red chili. I guess you could also buy it in, in, in pods or in powder. Uh, and just go in there and talking with all the farmers gives you a really good understanding of where the chili's grown, how it's grown, where it comes from, and sort of what it looks like before it makes it to your plate. So that's where I'd tell people to start. Then the next question, everybody wants to know, well, what restaurant should I go to? Yes. And there's, you know, everything from, there's, there's many, many different ways to serve green chili. I think, let's start with breakfast. There's a restaurant here in town that claims to have invented the breakfast burrito. Uh, I think it was back in the 60s or 70s. You know, I don't know. I I can't verify whether or not that's true. But People uh, in Texas might, might dispute that, Joe, but sure. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm sure there's a bunch of restaurants around the country that all, all claim this. But we have one here, just like everybody else. Uh, and that's called Tia Sofia's, very close to the plaza downtown. Um, and that's a good, you know, been around forever, a good place to go and experience breakfast burrito, which is kind of one of the most traditional ways to have chilies uh, served for breakfast. Um, a lot of people like green, uh, just goes nicely with with eggs, green chili, that is. Um, I encourage people get Christmas is what we call it here. So that's red and green together. Um, yeah. And they'll do kind of half and half. And one thing that's different about how you might experience a breakfast burrito elsewhere in the country, you know, most places will serve it to you in a kind of piece of foil and you can pick it up in a handheld style burrito. Um, here they do what's called smothered. Uh, so you, you literally smother, you, you lay the burrito down on the plate, smother it in, in this uh, chili sauce and then eat it with a fork. And it's, you know, really fantastic. So that's one place I'd go. Uh, another place, just a couple blocks from there, which does some of the more um, interesting contemporary uh, preparations of, of chili. So they'll do dust, you know, they'll take a chili relleno and dust it with uh, green chili powder, let's say, and, you know, kind of some more interesting uses of chili that you wouldn't get in a more traditional restaurant will be this place, Cafe Pasquale. So this is a a James Beard uh, award-winning restaurant. They were named, uh, uh, I think it's an American culinary treasure. It's kind of any restaurant that uh, the James Beard Foundation is viewed as, you know, very important to the American culinary tradition. Um, so they, and they've been around for, for a long, long time there and one of the most popular breakfast spots in town. So I definitely recommend checking that out. And then for lunch and dinner, there's a bunch of different places uh, people can go. Um, but I will, um, you know, mention one place that gets, very uh, frequently mentioned as kind of the top place to go to experience traditional New Mexican food is a restaurant called The Shed, very close to the plaza. Uh, great place. I love going there. But I would actually encourage people to check out their sister restaurant as well, which is a little bit less known uh, for the tourists and more of kind of a local spot. And that's called La Chosa. Uh, so owned by the same family down in the rail yard district. Um, and, you know, in addition to a little bit better parking just because it's not right downtown. The big benefit of going there is they serve sopapillas, uh, which is another topic we'll get to later. Yes, sopapillas. Yeah, which the shed, uh, kind of, and it's a funny story of why they don't, they serve garlic bread with their uh, chili dishes, which is also great, but 
why not go to their sister restaurant, La Chosa, where you can have the choice of sopapilla or garlic bread? You know, when we were in Santa Fe, we were there in the fall, and I remember driving around sort of outside of the town, and people who had metal roofs, tin roofs, were drying chilies on them all over the place. You'd drive down, and these these roofs were all decorated. They, they look so colorful with these chilies all drying on their rooftops. Do people still do that? Do they still dry uh, chilies on roofs? Sure, sure, yeah. If you if you head out of town, um, you know, into some of the surrounding uh, little towns and villages, you may find that. I think in kind of downtown Santa Fe, you'll see the, so these kind of hanging chili the uh, decorations. Yes, yes. So it's called a ristra, and uh, traditionally, that's how you would dry your your red chili uh, and even you know preserve and store it into the winter, back before you know we had all of the modern conveniences of today. You know, they also some somebody clever kind of realized. Well, in addition to a very practical way to dry your chilies, this is also a great way uh, to kind of liven up and and create some color against the the brown backdrop of many of the adobe buildings in town. Right. And so today, ristros are you know most often sold as kind of a, a decoration item uh, and hung you know in many many places around town. So nine times out of ten, when you see it, it's it's for uh, decoration purposes. However, you can still buy uh, ristros for food use. Uh, so I would tell people if that's something you're interested in, they sell them at the farmer's market. Um, but just make sure, you know, when you buy them, ask, you know, hey, has this been uh, the ones for decoration will, will usually be kind of lacquered or will have a preservative that's okay. put on top of the chilies. And so I, you definitely want to ask, hey, <laughs> you have don't you want to have that with your breakfast, <laughs> with yeah. your breakfast taco. Yeah. That would not be good. You mentioned the uh, sopapillas. What are exactly sopapillas and um, where are some of the other places we can get them? Yeah. So uh, sopapilla is a distinctly New Mexican food item. Everything else in New Mexican cuisine, you can, you know, very, you'll find very similar things in Tex-Mex or northern Mexican regional cuisine. You know, enchiladas we are not unique to here. Margaritas are not, of course. And even though New Mexico was the first place in the country that served, in the United States, that is, that served tequila, mo- most of the you know food traditions here are not unique to New Mexico. Uh, Sopapillas are kind of the one exception to that. And all of it is, uh, it's kind of like a, a little dough uh, pillow, if you will. They're, you know, different places make them differently. Um, it's just kind of fried dough that rises. It's, it's very hard to describe. Uh, you really have to go and, and eat one for yourself and kind of see what it's all about. But, um, you know, imagine maybe like a two layer pie dough with an air filling in between and the way that they're eaten. So what I love about them is they're very versatile. Uh, they're served usually at the, with the, with the main course at a New Mexican restaurant and you can eat it either as a savory item, you know, and kind of use it to scoop up and, and clean up some of the leftover chili uh, sauce that's, you know, put on top of enchiladas or other New Mexican items, or you can use it as a kind of a dessert. What surprises a lot of people who come here who haven't been to New Mexico before is all of the, uh, at a New Mexican restaurant, they have a little, um, kind of looks like a, you know, those old old red uh, little kind of squeeze uh, containers they'd have at a maybe a hot dog stand where you sure. you know go and p- put, put the ketchup on. on top of your hot dog. Yeah, exactly. 
So imagine one of those, but it's filled with honey. Oh. So a lot of people will come in and they'll, the, you know, it's already on the table just next to the salt and pepper. And they'll say, well, what's this honey doing here? This is weird. Um, but it's for the sopapillas for dessert. And so there's no right or wrong way. Uh, you know, I've seen it done a thousand ways. Everyone always kind of wonders, you know, how do you get the honey on your sopapilla? Do you, <laughs> do you put it down and then, and then smother it in honey and then use a fork or do you pick it up? For me personally, I kind of like to tear off a little piece at a time and then put honey on that one piece and then eat it. Again, no no right or wrong way, but, um, you know, sopapilla is really just a very simple kind of very delicious fried dough uh, served in New Mexican restaurants. And again, you know, great with uh, both your uh, as, as a savory item with, with to kind of clean up sauces and, you know, complement the the intense uh, flavors of the main course or as a dessert item, um, you know, usually with the honey. Love the versatility of that. So I was reading, when I was researching for us talking, Joe, I was reading about something that I'm not familiar with, and it seems like it's all over Santa Fe, and that's uh, pozole. Is that how you pronounce yeah. it? Yeah. So yes. talk about that briefly, if you could. People, you know, who are home cooks or, you know, f- familiar with maybe more exotic ingredients, you know, would, would be familiar maybe with a hominy. Have you heard of hominy before? Yes, yes. So same thing. Um, it's just corn that has been nixtamalized, uh, which is a preservation technique that's, you know, many thousands of years old, uh, where you basically add a, a, you know, there's acids and bases when we think about um, sort of the chemistry of this. So you add a very basic uh, solution to corn uh, to preserve it traditionally. And that creates um, hominy or pasole. It's a corn product in New Mexico, most often served with pork and red chili. And so uh, it's a, you know, wonderful dish in the winter that, you know, just a really nice stew. If people are familiar with Northern New Mexican, sorry, Northern Mexican cuisine or uh, any of the regional Mexican cuisine. So they would have a pozole dish as well. Uh, and I made this mistake once at a Mexican restaurant here in town uh, that's usually served with tripe, um, okay. which we can talk about what, what that is. <laughs> but in in New Mexican restaurants, um, it's just uh, the pozole, so the, the hominy, and then kind of pork chunks and red chili. Uh, so you don't have to worry about the tripe. Um, and depending on where you go, they, there's even places that would do a uh, kind of different interpretations of the traditional, you know, pork and red chili pasole. So I've seen, you know, green chili chicken pasole before. There's places that have vegetarian pasoles for people that are vegetarian. And uh, a wonderful dish. I, one kind of food experience I would call out in town um, that we actually do on my food tours which I think is great to illustrate the differences between um, Mexican and New Mexican, because a lot of people, you know, might think like, oh, well, what what is New Mexican? Isn't it just the same as Tex-Mex? Or if I go to, um, you know, to a Mexican restaurant outside of Mexico City, is it going to be the same? Or Oaxaca? How how are these things all different? And one experience that really brings this to light, I think, is uh, the restaurant that I'd recommended before down in the rail yard, La Chosa. So they serve a pozole that's prepared in a more traditional Mexican manner called pozole a la mexicana, uh, just means kind of the, uh, the Mexican style. And then they also serve a traditional new Mexican pozole. And you can order two cups of these side by side and see for yourself, uh, you know, what are the differences in the ingredients and, uh, very stark, you know, the difference. 
Um, they're both, both great to have, uh, but I really encourage people to go and experience that for themselves side by side. And it, it brings to life, you know, really just how different the two cuisines are, even though they're, you know, share very common, um, traditions. Um, you can really see the differences in ingredients when they're side by side in front of a plate. So what's the difference between the New Mexican pozole and the Mexican pozole? Oh, I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the way I like to think about it is, you know, New Mexico, especially in northern New Mexico, um, this happens all the time. People come visit and, you know, they, maybe they booked some flights out here uh, in January or February for a little trip. Didn't check the weather. They didn't realize that Santa Fe is at 7,000 feet. So, you know, almost 2,000 feet higher than Denver. So it's cold. And, um, you know, just a week or two ago, we got snow and it's, you know, I think the high this time of year on average is about 40 degrees and the lows can be in the 20s. And I'm telling you all this just to give you a sense of the, the growing conditions here. And the summer is nice. It's much less hot than people would expect. But, you know, it's still away. Once you move away from the rivers, uh, this, the, the kind of agricultural opportunities, you know, away from the rivers again, you know, it's pretty dry. Not, you know, rain when it does come is kind of few and far between in the summer. And so it's tough to grow a lot of things that traditionally you know, in Mexico you were able to grow. So things like limes, avocado, um, some of the more colorful things that are in Mexican cuisine, uh, a lot of raw vegetables. So tomatoes, although they do grow here, would grow better further in the south. Even something as simple as a cabbage. Uh, all of these things would be in the uh, pozole a la mexicana. So it's a very colorful dish with, uh, again, avocado, lime, uh, purple cabbage on top, kind of typical of what you'd expect out of Mexican cuisine, where you see a lot of color, uh, freshness, avocado is a you know, big thing that we don't have here. And then if you move to the uh, Mexi new Mexican pozole, much less colorful. And I think, you know, if you go back in, in history here, as uh, Santa Fe traded with uh, Mexico, on the Camino Real uh, many hundreds of years ago and culinary influences came north here to Santa Fe uh, because they didn't have all of these colorful, flavorful ingredients, but we did have chilies. Uh, and so they replaced a lot of the flavor that was lost because of, you know, we weren't just able, you can't grow avocados up here. It's just too cold and the growing season's not long enough. That Those flavors were replaced with a, a spicy flavor, which came from the chili. And so you'll kind of see the the simpleness, the rusticness of the New Mexican dish against the sort of freshness and kind of vibrant colors of the the Mexican dish and the pozole a la mexicana. Um, so I love that kind of comparison. And I think there's no better way in town to really see and understand how New Mexican cuisine is distinct on its own, but it, it kind of draws from culinary traditions and and histories uh, from northern Mexico. They sound quite different. You know, you've got the, the chilies on the one side, then you've got the, the lime and the avocado on the other, but it's it's the same dish. They're both pisole, but they sound quite different. That's very interesting. Uh, Joe, let's talk about something that uh, Santa Fe is also famous for, and that's the thing called the Frito pie, which I've seen but I've never experienced it. I've never had it myself. What can you say about uh, Santa Fe's relationship with the Frito pie? Yeah, good question. Um, first, a bit of historical perspective, I think. So 
so we're coming up. I just saw on TV this morning, you know, later this year, they're going to celebrate the 400th anniversary of uh, Plymouth Rock, you know, so out in Massachusetts where the right. Pilgrims landed. And so a lot of Americans, you know, when we think about the history of uh, the country and the birthplace of America, you know, we look to Boston and New England and, um, and of course, you know, 400 years is very old. But keep in mind when the Pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock in 1620, um, so the very first kind of permanent Spanish settlement in New Mexico dates to 1598, so a full 22 years before that. Uh, and the reason this relates to Frito Pie, you know, is when you think about the advent of Frito Pie and kind of uh, where it fits into the New Mexico food uh, scene, it's a pretty recent, um, you know, tradition, I guess. Right. Um, so, you know, in the kind of the 20th century, probably 1950s, 1960s. Um, so Fritos, of course, come from Texas. You know, one thing that's kind of funny about here is there's, you know, Texas doesn't even know this, but New Mexico kind of sees Texas as a bit of a rival state, you know, uh, <laughs> okay. our much bigger uh, kind of sister state to the, to the east of us. So there's, you know, a lot of different stories about, you know, some towns in Texas will kind of claim that they invented this first and, um, you know, New Mexico will claim, oh, no, but it's our dish. Um, but it, let's start with what it is. So. Uh, really simple, just, you know, take Fritos, um, then kind of on, on top of that, you know, you could put, and there's very many different interpretations of it. I've seen it with, you know, red chili, I've seen it served with green chili, um, beans, you could put kind of ground beef or some sort of ground meat on there. And it's usually served actually traditionally uh, inside of the, the Frito bag. So you would just open the bag, uh, kind of dump these things in. Uh, I've also seen it done with kind of cheese whiz in there as well. Oh, jeez! You know, very delicious. Uh, maybe not the most healthy thing, um, and and pretty simple. You know, I mean, I think it kind of probably uh, rose in popularity back in the Route 66 era. You know, when when people kind of like to go to, you know, quick uh, kind of counter service uh, food uh, became a very popular dish in here. And, the place to go have one if you if you want to have one in Santa Fe, if you want the kind of most simple traditional version, there's a little store right on the plaza called the Five and Dime, which has been there forever. Uh, and in the back of the store there, they serve uh, Frito pies. And there's kind of a funny controversy about about that place. So Anthony Bourdain, when he did his New Mexico episode, which you can go right. and watch, right. he went to the Five and Dime and you know had a Frito pie there. And the way he described it, you know, I, I think was pretty accurate. Uh, of it's kind of maybe not the most uh, appetizing of, you know, cheese, cheese whiz, for example, is not, you know, kind of, uh, maybe it maybe it tastes great, but it's maybe not the most appetizing for some people. It doesn't look great. Yeah. And so he kind of de- described this whole, you know, what, what the what the food really is. And, and, and it wasn't in a, you know, he didn't put it maybe in the, the best light. It probably wasn't the best thing he had while he was here. And people here were really outraged, you know, oh, Anthony Bourdain doesn't know what he's talking about. And, right. you know, here's where you should go for Frito Pies. So, so anyway, look that up. You know, people here are very, very proud of, you know, the state and our food. And um, so that, that didn't, you know, earn him many fans here. Um, but there's many other places where you can go and have Frito Pies, you know, and, and kind of have even fancier versions of it. Uh, one thing that I think, you know, again, some of, one of my favorite things to do, I mean, because pretty you can go to, you know, maybe two or three traditional New Mexican meals here. And really that's all it takes to kind of get a sense of what it is. You know, once you've had a couple of the main dishes, so enchiladas, pozole, which we talked about, uh, chili reno is another, uh, green chili stew. 
uh, sopapillas, you know, all these things. And then, you know, pretty quickly, it all is very similar. And so what's really fun is to go to some of the restaurants in town that are taking New Mexican um, traditional dishes and kind of putting a more contemporary spin on them. And so one thing, you know, super, super random, but I think it's worth uh, mentioning. There's a, a little place in town called the Santa Fe Oxygen Bar, which uh, is exactly what it sounds like. Okay. Tradition, typically, you know, they, because we're at 7,000 feet and people have t- trouble with altitude, you can go there and, and sit and, you know, breathe. Um, I don't know if it's 100% pure oxygen, but, you know, at least more oxygen than is in the atmospheric air. But they also – they branched out and opened a restaurant there. And, and like a lot of things in Santa Fe, you know, people here are very healthy and into health and wellness and, and healthy eating. So they serve a – I think it's – if it's not vegan, it's at least vegetarian um, Frito pie there, which I want to say is made with uh, jackfruit and just totally different than what you're going to get at the Five and Dime. And the funniest thing is these two places are two blocks apart. So you know, if people really want to – go go all in on Frito experiencing Frito pies. There's a compare and contrast for you. Yeah. So go and have the traditional one at the five and dime and then walk two blocks down the street to the Santa Fe oxygen bar and have the vegan one. Uh, and they're both great, just very different kind of interpretations of the, the same thing. Chocolate is originally from Mexico and, and Central America, but Santa Fe's become a kind of a chocolate hub uh, what's the chocolate scene like in Santa Fe? Yeah, um, another good question. So, um, you know, probably what started to put Santa Fe on the map was a little chocolate place called Kakawa. They make, um, you know, really amazing kind of elixirs, truffles, um, you know, chocolate bars, all kinds of stuff, and, and just really interesting kind of flavor combinations. And, you know, they even do some kind of traditional um, Mayan coca drinks uh, that you, you know, wouldn't find elsewhere. And, um, they've been around for a couple of years now, at least, um, and kind of, you know, really well done shop with great service and just things that you can't find, uh, maybe at your chocolate shop down where, where you come from. So they kind of started it. And then there's another place that just opened the last couple of years called the, I want to say it's the art of cacao or, or something along those lines. Uh, a little bit further out of town, um, but they're doing workshops and, the, you know, the, the gentleman who runs it, you know, is just incredibly passionate about chocolate and everything chocolate. And so that's a good place to go and learn. And then in addition, I know it's not Santa Fe, but in Taos, there is a, I believe he's a Venezuelan gentleman um, who, you know, had some uh, prior chocolate making experience who opened a little place off the plaza called Chocla uh, or Chocla. And they do really amazing bean-to-bar chocolates. Uh, that's probably my one of my favorite places to go. Just tiny little shop, and, and you wouldn't find it unless you kind of knew what you were looking for. But yeah, I think for a town of 70,000, I mean, the fact that we have, you know, a number of artisanal chocolate makers. And then I didn't even mention um, down on the plaza, you know, there's there's some more commercial or commercialized makers. Um, so Senor Murphy's, which is in La Fonda Hotel, you know, this was, of course, some interesting red and green chili chocolates. You know, as you mentioned, chocolate's not even from here, but I just think um, people, Santa Fe has such a, a, a strong um, kind of culinary tradition and, and people here just love eating and drinking. And so as a result, you know, you've seen uh, 
not only in chocolate, but also in cheese and wine and, and other things, um, just really great shops to find great things to, to eat and drink. We're talking with Joe Griffith, founder of Wander New Mexico, a tour company in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and in Albuquerque. Albuquerque is not far from Santa Fe. I think people who are going to Santa Fe, they'll probably land in Albuquerque first. Um, you guys do a tour there, I believe. Tell us a little bit about what makes Albuquerque special, Joe? Yeah. Um, so Albuquerque is by far the biggest city in the state. So, you know, depending on where you kind of draw the lines around the boundary, um, anywhere from 10 times larger to 15 times larger than Santa Fe. And what's funny about it. So, you know, again, going back to New Mexico's history. So Santa Fe was founded in 1610. In the years from then until when the railroad arrived in 1880, Santa Fe was kind of the biggest city. Um, it's always been the capital of New Mexico and is to this day. So it's still the political uh, center. Um, but when the railroad arrived, um, you know, Albuquerque kind of quickly overtook Santa Fe and went from, you know, the time there were just both cities had a couple of thousand people in population. Um, and it just skyrocketed and became um, the commercial center of New Mexico. You know, the, the airport, as you mentioned, is there. Although I will mention Santa Fe has a great airport and uh, really uh, I prefer flying into there and would encourage people to check that out when they're searching for the flights to come here. But today's Albuquerque, I mean, it's most well known, right, for maybe things that aren't so – well, let's start with the balloon fiesta. That's a good thing. But the other thing that everybody thinks of, and I've been amazed, you know, traveling – in Europe, and you know, you'll you'll um, go to a coffee shop, and people say, "Oh, where are you from?" And you say, "New Mexico," and then they say, "Oh, Breaking Bad. I've seen that on <laughs> on TV." Right. Uh, so that's probably the main thing that it's known for. And Breaking Bad's been off the air for several years now. Is that still a big attraction for folks to come and see the chicken place and the A one car wash and all that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think so. It's um, you know such a good uh, TV show, and and yes. even I think Netflix had the movie last year. Right. So they're still getting mileage out of it. What's really neat about Albuquerque is you know a lot of people maybe just land there, maybe they spend the night, and then they you know they use it as a launching point to the rest of New Mexico. And it's actually um, you know if you know where to go and you know um, what to go and see, you know this really amazing city with uh, you know a great food scene, um, outstanding breweries. And kind of tons of hidden gems, um, you know, that might be right underneath your nose and you might drive right by them on I-25. And if you don't take, kind of take the time to go and, and find these things, um, you, you might be missing a lot. So, you know, we love to go down there and eat. There's a, you know, because the city is so much bigger, a lot, uh, a lot more restaurants, um, you know, tons of great New Mexican places, bunch of great breweries, um, some really beautiful places to go and um, enjoy the New Mexican blue skies you know, down next to the Rio Grande. Um, so there's, yeah, it's a, you know, fantastic city that I think is very much sort of underappreciated. And, uh, you know, most folks had, at a minimum spend a day there as part of their visit to New Mexico. You talked about the breweries in Albuquerque. Santa Fe's famous for breweries. I've had great beer in Santa Fe. You're a home brewer, right, Joe? Yeah, sort of. Um, <laughs> I brewed a, a couple of times and then, um, Recently, uh, I've, I've realized, oh, wow, it's just so much equipment and cleaning and work. And then I can walk down the street to a brewery and have a beer that's you know, three times better than what I spent all that time making. <laughs> I know. It's like, it's like when, you're, when you think, oh, I'm going to be a winemaker. And then you're like, 
<sighs> okay, now I'm crushing the grapes and it's cold outside and my hands are freezing and you know what? Screw it. I'll just go buy a bottle. <laughs> um, yeah. I think you kind of maybe had the same experience a little bit. Home brewing's fun, of course. So talk about some of the beer places that we can visit in Santa Fe because I think it's really known as having a great craft beer scene there. Let's do kind of large, medium, and, and then super small. Okay. Um, so large, you know, no... No kind of visit to Santa Fe is complete without uh, a, you know, our oldest brewery here started in 1988, um, Santa Fe Brewing. Um, they just completed uh, an expansion out of their production facility. You will pass right by it if you're driving up from Albuquerque. Uh, it's off of I-25. And they put in a, you know, really nice kind of, oh, it's really too big to be called a tap room. I don't know what they're calling it. Just a kind of really big bar uh, next to their uh, major production facility out off I-25. And so what I like about them is you can, you know, they do a lot of classic beers that they've been doing really well for a long time. So one of my all-time favorite uh, beers here is the Java Stout uh, that they do. Um, they, a couple of years ago, introduced a, an IPA called a 7K IPA uh, because we're at 7,000 feet. Um, so go there and, you know, you'll see, you'll see time and time again, a number of their beers served around town. So it's not like you're going to get anything there that you wouldn't be able to find in town. But I think they're the oldest, they're the biggest, I think they're even the biggest brewer in the, in the state. Um, and so kind of, you know, you can't talk about craft beer in Santa Fe without talking about Santa Fe brewing. Um, then in the medium category. So, uh, really exciting. They just won the best brew pub at the great American beer festival last year. Uh, it's a little place called rally farmhouse sales. Uh, located in uh, just off Cerritos Road in Santa Fe, kind of away from the, the tourist uh, infrastructure, which is nice to go and and see kind of the you know where all the, the regular people live. But it's uh, you know nothing too remarkable about the space, but they just have you know very good food uh, and pub fare that's you know kind of goes a, a step above what you might experience at most brew pubs. And then um, the brewer, so he's um, works at Los Alamos. I want to say he's a chemist. Uh, and he was president of the homebrew club. And so, you know, real beer geek, uh, knows just a ton about brewing and they, they put out just a bunch of, you know, if you really love geeking out on beer, this is the place to go because you're going to find a bunch of stuff that, uh, they're making. That's just really interesting that you're not going to see anywhere else. And then in addition to their own beers, they have a, a great selection of other um, unique beers from both around New Mexico and, and the rest of the country. And then for uh, small breweries, so uh, I know a year ago this is true, and I I'd imagine it still is. The smallest brewery in the state of New Mexico is a little place called Chili Line Brewing, right downtown, pretty close to the plaza. It's a, a young man um, whose father, you know, owned an Italian restaurant here in town. His father's Italian American. I want to say first or second generation. The the young man wanted to move abroad, and I think to Thailand to start a brewery there. But then his father lured him back to Santa Fe by saying, hey, why don't you just open a, your, your brewery attached to uh, our pizza restaurant? So pizza and beer can't go wrong. Yeah, they've got a great, you know, probably the best pizza in Santa Fe uh, called Pizzeria Delino. And then attached right to that building. And you can you can either go to the brewery side and have the pizzas or you can go to the pizza side and then have the beers is Chili Line Brewery and, uh, you know, tiny, tiny little space. Uh, the owner is a guy and the brewer a guy named Xander. And so go in there and, uh, you know, they do some really interesting stuff, specializing in, in smoked beers. So uh, Rausch beers, which is a, a German style of brewing um, and just some, you know, really interesting stuff that 
they are so small. Uh, you're, you know, maybe there's one or two other places in town where you'll find their beers, but, uh, other than that, you know, super unique stuff. Joe, you mentioned the plaza, and this is really the center of Santa Fe, the plaza. You've got a tour that goes around the plaza. Uh, talk about why the plaza is special and what it has to do with uh, Santa Fe life. So the plaza, you know, historically going all the way back to, you know, the early 1600s when Santa Fe was founded, to this day, you know, the oldest continuously used public building in the country is the Palace of the Governors. Um, so this was, you know, if you think about if you've been to Spain and you kind of go to any old town there, there's always a little town square. And then right on the square in, in Spanish, it's the Ayuntamiento, which means uh, kind of city hall building. You know, they're going to put the the city government building right on the square. And so NFA being founded by the Spanish in the 1600s, uh, they kind of copied this approach here and put this building, the Palace of the Governors, right on the on the square uh, the church was there at the time, um, and this was and has always been um, sort of the center of the commercial uh, life here in Santa Fe. It's pretty neat, you know, if you go through the different time periods in New Mexico's history. So, you know, first being part of the Spanish Empire, um, you know, then for a couple of years, we were part of Mexico uh, after Mexico declared its independence from Spain. And then finally, a U.S. territory. Uh, and you have the advent of the Santa Fe Trail, where Anglos started to come here from the east for the first time. This is in the middle of the 1800s. Uh, and then finally, the arrival of the railroad. Um, Santa Fe has always been at a crossroads. So, you know, starting with the Camino Real heading south down into Mexico, uh, when Mexico is our biggest trading partner. Then um, that next time period I talked about, the Santa Fe Trail. And then finally today, and, and Route 66, all of these various uh, trade routes have all kind of pass through the, the plaza. And so one thing we talk about on our tours, you know, is kind of pointing out, you know, okay, here's the road and this is the Camino Real and this went towards Mexico. And then if you exit the plaza um, towards the Southeast corner, you know, this is the old Santa Fe trail. And literally the street sign there says old Santa Fe trail. Uh, and so it's just really neat that, you know, this, this, this area the plaza has been the center of uh, kind of life for, for 400 years now. Um, today, you know, no matter what time of year you go down there, um, it still is the, the kind of center of life here. Um, I think, you know, I love it at all times of year. I, I think uh, most people will come in the summer. Uh, that's when the majority of, of folks come to visit. And they do this wonderful kind of concert series down there um, most nights of the week where, you know, bring your kind of lawn chair and there's, you know, a thousand or more people down listening to these free concerts that they have. Um, but even, you know, in the fall, um, you know, when the leaves are changing, it's beautiful. And then one of my favorite times that I think is kind of underappreciated is if you go there in January or February in the dead of winter, like we are now, uh, after our fresh snowfall. And um, if you walk through at night, they, they usually put up some um, lights in the winter, which are nice around Christmas time. It's just really, you know, a beautiful place to go. Uh, and you, you can walk through and almost have the plaza all to yourself uh, at night in the winter. And you know, just how quiet the city is, uh, provides such a contrast against that kind of concert series that they do in the summer when it's much more bustling and, um, you know, everybody has their lawn chairs out and all the food vendors are set up. Um, so nobody comes to visit with Santa Fe without seeing the plaza. You don't even need to worry about adding a tier list because, um, there's almost no way you can, you can come here without crossing through there at some point or another. You mentioned the palace of the governors, Joe, and 
one of my favorite things about Santa Fe is the market that's right outside the Palace of the Governors. I remember wandering through there and tons of Native American artisans with just amazing pieces of art. And later I learned that folks uh, rotate through there. You've got different vendors on different days. They have a little lottery as to who will be a part of it. But that's one of my favorite things to do is just browse all of the market stalls at the Palace of the Governors. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you, you another thing, you kind of can't miss it. So it'll be right underneath the uh, what's called the portal there. And a uh, really neat program that's been going on, um, you know, I, I want to say since the 50s or 60s. And so it's run by the uh, Department of the Interior. And, and um, you, you know, the only way that you can sell underneath the the portal there is to be from one of the Native American tribes that surround Santa Fe and uh, a very neat experience to go and browse and shop. Um, you know, I always tell people the vendors love to chat with you and kind of tell you about their work and their story. Uh, and it's really amazing because, you know, as you mentioned, it is a lottery system. Uh, many people are driving, you know, from their homes, which in some cases can be one, two, or even three hours away from Santa Fe. Uh, and so, it's a wake up very early in the morning, you know, and arrive, um, hope that you get a space and then people will be out, um, nearly every day of the year, you know, rain or shine. Of course, there's many, many more in the summer, uh, than there would be in the winter. Um, but just a great place. I mean, people are very friendly and I, I encourage, you know, even if you're not buying something, go and browse. Uh, it is a great place to buy. However, though, because you can, um, you know, many of the shops in town sell Native American jewelry or, or, uh, art or pottery. But what's neat about the experience in front of the palace of the governors is you can speak directly with the person that made it. And you also ensure, you know, hundred percent of the proceeds go right into their, their pocket, which is uh, great as well. You talked about the, the artwork with the uh, Native Americans. And then of course, Santa Fe has a huge art community. There's art galleries all along Canyon road. You guys have a tour uh, in the Canyon Road area. Talk about Canyon Road and um, your tour there. You know, Canyon Road is is kind of a, you know, you can't come to Santa Fe without also seeing that. And what I love about our tour is the way that most people experience Canyon Road, most visitors, is they'll, you know, start at one end, they'll walk to the other, maybe they'll pop in a couple of galleries. Um, and if you know your, if you know our art or if you know what you're looking for, you'll have a great time. Even if you don't, you'll, you'll still have a great time. But what the tour brings to life, I think is it's, you know, there's so much history there. Um, and I think there's two parts to it that are really important to understand that you'd never get unless you kind of had researched it beforehand or had somebody who was, was, uh, guiding you around and telling you about the history of the area. So the first is, um, what Canyon Road was historically, which was, a kind of farming community, you know, right on Santa Fe's doorstep. So we've got this old map uh, on our tours from 1882, just after the railroad arrived. And you can kind of see Canyon Road. And um, the reason it's called Canyon Road is it's the road that goes up into the canyon. Uh, it was actually Camino del Canyon uh, until they changed the name into English uh, back in, the, I want to say, the 1950s or 1960s. And so traditionally, um, this was Spanish families uh, just living along the, the river, uh, because there is a little Santa Fe River, believe it or not, that comes down out of the canyon. And I talked before about the farmlands here and how it's not a great place to farm. Well, this land is a good place to farm because it's, right again, right next to the river. And so uh, historically, it was just a bunch of little uh, homes, you know, homesteads heading up into the canyon uh, and farmers, you know, and, and fruit trees, 
people growing chili and corn and squash uh, right there, right, right along the river. Now, the second thing that's important to understand about Canyon Road is how did it transition from that and just a bunch of families living, you know, along in an agrarian lifestyle to the kind of art mecca that it is today. And, you know, to really oversimplify the rise of Santa Fe's art community, uh, it all comes down to uh, tuberculosis, believe it or not. Oh. So, yeah, you'd never guess that. Uh, a long time ago, when when uh, the first artists started to come, the first Anglo artists, I should say, started to come from the East, East Coast, uh, they came here because they had tuberculosis and the high dry air was, was kind of prescribed by doctors at the time as a way to um, heal from that. And so there, there were a number of um, you know pretty well-known uh, sanatoriums in the area that took in these artists and they got here. They realized there was already a big arts tradition to draw from, um, you know, beginning with Native American pottery and and um, many other types of uh, art forms that Native Americans were engaged in for you know many thousands of years here. Uh, continuing then with the Spanish, they had an artistic tradition, uh, which continues to this day. And the Anglos arriving from the east was kind of the third layer on top of that. Uh, and they, you know, saw how beautiful of a place it was. You know, many of the folks who were coming out at the time kind of networked with one another out on Canyon Road, and it very quickly turned in from this kind of dusty old street, you know, with, with a bunch of uh, families living and farming, uh, at first into this sort of bohemian um, kind of artist enclave uh, to today, where it's, you know, um, kind of high end gallery after high end gallery after high end gallery. And what I think is most interesting about the tour is. You know, there's these tiny little signs of Canyon Road's history that you'd never notice um, unless you were on a, on a tour. So you can kind of see, um, you know, there's a market that we go into. It's in, it's in our gallery today. Um, but back in the day, it was, um, you know, the, the one of the busiest pinon trading operations uh, in northern New Mexico. Uh, and today, you know, fancy high-end gallery, but you can very clearly see, you know, if you stand out front and you kind of squint your eyes hard enough, you can see the where the storefront was and it, it looks just like an old market. There's another place where we look and see, you know, here's where a gas station used to be. Uh, and it's in front of, again, another uh, little market. There's, you know, all the fields and we kind of take people back behind where the art galleries are and you can see the layout of the land parcels and how it was, you know, very much all homes that front the street and then uh, farming plots right behind that. Um, we point out the old acequia uh, and how those were used to irrigate um, the crops at the time and how one of the acequias is still there. Um, so there's just this, like all areas in, in Santa Fe and northern New Mexico, I think this, you know, incredibly rich kind of layered history. Um, and it's very much, you know, overall a city here where, uh, you know, the first time you experience it, you know, it's really fun and, and you, you learn a lot and get to see a bunch of things you wouldn't see elsewhere in the country. But it's really only the second, third, fourth, fifth visits where you can really start to appreciate um, just how much depth there is to everything here. Joe, I don't think we can talk about art in uh, New Mexico or Santa Fe without talking about Giorgio O'Keefe. My parents, back in the 70s, they used to go to Scottsdale, Arizona and Santa Fe, New Mexico. And inevitably, they would come back with a painting or a piece of artwork. And that's how I originally uh, got into Georgie O'Keeffe. My mom had this Georgie O'Keeffe print that she gave me hung in my office for years and years. 
And there's a Georgia O'Keeffe Museum in Santa Fe. Talk about her influence and importance to art in Santa Fe and New Mexico. Oh, yeah. Uh, huge. I mean, so she's probably, you know, one of the most famous uh, American artists that there is. Um, and what I like, you know, she what I, what I like about her story is, um, you know, she was very kind of uh, broke, broke the mold for the time. You know, yes. uh, so she became famous because of her, uh, you know, her partner, Alfred Stieglitz. But then, you know, once she was on her own, um, lived up in Abbey Q, which is a, uh, you know, tiny little farming community, uh, about an hour, hour and a half north of here, um, and kind of lived this very independent life uh, at the time for, for a woman that kind of set the or inspired a lot of other uh, artists and other women to follow in her footsteps. So if you fast forward to today, uh, Santa Fe has more uh, female owned businesses you know, as a percentage of the number of businesses here than anywhere else in the country. It's one of the top places for uh, female entrepreneurs. Um, so she really, you know, paved the way for that. Uh, and I think her artwork is obviously um, really incredible. You know, today there's a, you know, a really great museum that's very close to the plaza where you can go uh, learn more about her life uh, and see some of her works. But I'd also say, you know, for people that are really, you know, love George O'Keefe is, you know, you can't come to New Mexico and not go to Abbey Q and kind of see her home out there. Um, the museum and the foundation, you know, does tours of the home. It's something you need to look into in advance. Um, but, you know, that's another really amazing thing to do and a good way to kind of put yourself in her shoes and go and see the, the beautiful landscape out there that inspired uh, so much of her work. Uh, the last thing I'll say about her, you know, because we do do food tours, is there's a restaurant in town named Aloisa, which... Uh, Aloisa is the grandmother of a local chef named John Sedler. And um, she was, uh, I think, directly or indirectly connected to Georgia O'Keeffe. I think she maybe was was her cook for a while. Uh, and so they do a Georgia O'Keeffe-inspired uh, menu, a tasting menu, which is, which is pretty neat. That is uh, so I cool. I haven't done it. Yeah. Uh, I haven't done it myself, uh, but it's been on my list of things to do for, for a long time. Um, and so I'd encourage people to check that out as well. And there's just so many places in town that are kind of um, continuing her legacy today and, and so many great places to go and, and learn more about her. You know, I when I was growing up, I, she was an elderly lady at that point. And I, that was always the vision that I had of her was this elderly, frail lady doing these paintings. And then I started to learn more about her. And now I just think, she was a badass, you know. I mean, oh, she, totally. She totally did what she wanted to do, and it's it's fantastic. And I I really recommend going to the museum as well. I think it's really fascinating to learn about her life story. Well, uh, Joe, it's been a treat talking to you. It's making me want to get back to Santa Fe now. I think everyone's going to want to go to Santa Fe. Tell folks how they can book a tour with you um, when they come to Santa Fe to uh, go on a food tour. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just head to our website. Uh, so the company is Wander New Mexico, W-A-N-D-E-R, and then New Mexico. Um, we run a number of tours around town. So we've got a, a couple of tours in the plaza. Uh, we've got one on Canyon Road, uh, the rail yard district, which is where the farmer's market is. We do a, a tour there on, on Tuesdays once that uh, farmer's market starts up on Tuesdays. And then I'd encourage people, you know, just reach out as well. So uh, the contact information is on our website and you can find the, the schedule for all of our tours. Uh, and a phone number as well. And, you know, we love chatting with people who are kind of planning their trip here and giving restaurant recommendations and 
and where to go hike and, you know, what other things to go and see. So yeah, now's a great time to visit. I think, um, obviously the summer is probably the most popular time, but, uh, I'd also encourage people, you know, um, kind of April, May can be really good weather early in the season. And then the other time that's really awesome to come to is, is, uh, a couple of weeks after the balloon fiesta. Um, so those two kind of shoulder seasons, um, you know, you get a little bit better deal on your hotel and you'll have a little bit better time, uh, getting restaurant reservations at some of the places that are, are more popular. Joe, we'll put links to your website and all the stuff we've talked about in the show notes. Thanks for being on the show and I look forward to seeing you in Santa Fe. Yeah. Great chatting with you. Um, and thanks for having me on your show. All right. There you go. Santa Fe, New Mexico. Got to get back there when we're able to travel again. It's such a great city. And Joe is right. The cuisine of Santa Fe is not Tex-Mex. It's something totally different and unique and wonderful in and of itself. Like I said at the beginning of the show, uh, Joe's food tours are not operating through the month of April. He's looking to open up in May, but of course that could change depending on what the situation is with the pandemic. You can go to wandernewmexico.com for more information. And if you're thinking of going to New Mexico, do Joe a favor and buy a gift certificate for a tour sometime in the future when the business does open up again. In fact, that's good advice for all small businesses. You know, they are really struggling right now. And so it's a good idea to help them out as much as you can. If you've got a local favorite restaurant that you go to every week, well, maybe they offer takeout. Or if you've got a favorite place to go or a favorite activity, maybe you can buy a gift certificate for that and enjoy it at a time in the future. The money that comes in will help keep that business afloat. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Destination Eat Drink. I'm going to remind you to go to my website, DestinationEatDrink.com. I've got more about Santa Fe there, including lots of great places to eat and drink and fun things to do. It's at DestinationEatDrink.com. Click on U.S. Destinations and then Santa Fe. And I've also been posting a lot of blog entries at Destination Eat Drink. Those are shorter form articles about other topics like the love affair that Hawaiians have with spam or the unique coffee custom in Naples, Italy. I also posted an article about something called corn smut, something that farmers in the U.S. hate but is a real delicacy in Mexico. That's all at DestinationEatDrink.com. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by Ed Silla and the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I thank you, Ed. I am Brent Peterson. I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. <laughs>